Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to the Merrick's podcast. Today we will talk about the economic policies of the Chinese government. I am Claudia Wessling, Director of Communications and Publications at Mercator Institute for China Studies. And I'm very honored to welcome Barry Norton on the show today. Hello, Barry. Hi. Just a brief introduction for those among our audience who do not yet know you. Barry Norton is the So Kwan Lok Chair of Chinese International Affairs at UC San Diego. Um, he's one of the world's most highly respected economists working on China. Um, recent research focuses on regional economic growth in China and its relationship to foreign trade and investment. Barry is the author of several books on China's economic reform and transitions during past decades. His latest book, The Rise of China's Industrial Policy, was just published this year. And also with us today is Max Zenglein, my colleague for Merix. Max is our chief economist. He leads economic research at the Institute and has just published an analysis on China's approach to globalization. And Max is also the author of The Economic Indicators, a quarterly publication on China's economic development. Hi, Max. Hi, Claudia. Well, as I said, we're talking about China's economy, very broad topic, and uh, many of our listeners will have read about the many challenges China is facing on several levels. In the third quarter, we have just seen growth declining more sharply than expected, power shortages, efforts to control risks in the banking and financial sector, occasional COVID-19 outbreaks that had an effect on consumption were mentioned as some of the factors contributing to this slowdown in growth. At the same time, the Chinese government seems determined to push for very fundamental changes to China's economic system. And that leads me to my first question to Barry Norton. Barry, policymakers seem willing to tolerate lower GDP growth. They seek to tackle long-term structural issues and rebalance the economy in line with broader policy goals. In this context, the latest buzzword spread by Xi Jinping and his entourage is common prosperity. Barry, could you explain what Beijing hopes to achieve and why is this being rolled out right now? That's a great question. And of course, it's, it's uh, something that many people are wondering about. How serious is the sudden invocation of common prosperity again. Of course, the, the word has been with us since the beginning of the reform process as something that basically we should, uh, Chinese policymakers have said, well, we should keep it in mind, but we might have to defer it uh, while we focus on productivity. And now all of a sudden they're saying, well, no, we don't have to defer it. So how serious is it? You know, we just saw the release of the actual speech by Xi Jinping about common prosperity. It was made several months ago, but it was just released last week. And really the most striking thing about this particular speech is how cautious it is. In other words, we already knew that the slogan was out there without very much substantive content. We could all see that from the outside. What's surprising in this speech is how Xi Jinping specifically says, we need common prosperity, but we cannot become a welfare state. We must guard against welfare dependence. The project of setting up a, just a, a retirement system is going to take a long, long time. So in a way, 
what this showed us is that the slogan is partly compensation for a lack of action in certain areas. It's a mixed picture. And so I think um, it's something where we have to take it very carefully and, and not simply accept the sort of headline slogan, as you say, that's out there. Lack of action um, makes me think of the tech sector, which is currently being hit by a, well, my, my colleagues often call it policy blitz, regulation hitting big tech companies. What does this mean to China's economic model? I mean, is this a sign that things will just change tremendously? In recent years, China has placed a big emphasis on fostering tech companies, digital tech, emerging tech, you name it. Is this now turned upside down and where does this go? I think it's absolutely true that the, the changes that happened in the summer of 2021 are very, very profound. Not because they're turning over the emphasis on high-tech development. That's definitely still with us. But because the leadership felt the confidence and the impetus to add a whole range of different objectives and felt the urgency to apply instruments to get there that are much rougher, more abrupt, and less consistent with the market economy than what they had been doing before. So they've really changed the game. Now, I don't think they've changed the game in a way that uh, represents a de-emphasis of their, of their tech objectives. You know, the, the one way that people have talked about this is saying, oh, China wants hardware more than software. China wants to be more like Germany than the United States is one way that in the Chinese discourse, it's, it's, it's out there. Um, and that's an element, but I don't think it's the most important element. I think the more important element is the government investing more in sort of comprehensive control of production chains so that the government is investing not just in a few national champions that work well, but also in what they see as their weak points, because they feel that they need to shore up their high-tech economy against the potential threat from the United States, which has been manifested against the Huawei company. And so we see, I've, I've kind of conflated uh, two, two strands here, but let me just uh, unravel them a little bit here now. So in other words, on the tech strand, we see important changes, but it's definitely still in place. And the other important strand is we see the party and Xi Jinping in particular bringing in a whole set of new objectives in addition to the tech thrust that is seriously complicating the policy environment in China. And so I think it's a really important turning point for, for both those reasons, in fact. Let me bring in Max here. Um, Max, what is your take on this regulatory crackdown? China's tech giants have flourished over the past few years, being poster child of innovation and entrepreneurship. And now with the recent crackdowns, one could get the impression those entrepreneurs and the CCP have fallen out of love. Um, is this really the case? And how will the tightening of the regulatory environment impact tech companies' ability to operate in China? I wouldn't go as far as that they have been falling out of love, but their relationship has matured. And uh, I think there is clearly a, a certain readjustment taking place at the moment, and their operating environment is shifting 
to an extent, it's also becoming more politicized. And I think um, we've seen this regulatory crackdown taking place also in a fairly unregulated space so far. And I think some of this is not too different what we see in the debates that we have in the West, in the US and Europe taking place when it comes to these tech giants. This is about monopoly issues or anti-monopoly regulation being enforced as well as data privacy. So I think this is one side of it. On the other hand, they clearly need them in the new emerging technology. I mean, from fintech to AI, it's really the private companies that were not part of the strategic planning of, of policymakers in the past, where, however, China has become very strong uh, and innovative. And I think this, well, this is increasingly also making them strategically relevant. And this obviously also raises expectations on them to, to deliver on this and to align their priorities with well, the those or the the of the the goals of the country, if you want to say. Um, so I think this is really something that's taking place, and it's a multi-dimensional aspects that are hitting the tech sector at the moment. And I just want to say how much I agree with what what Max just said. You know that this is a big elephant, and it's easy to touch different parts of the elephant and come to different conclusions. As he says, there's an aspect to the regulatory tightening, which is completely familiar to us, especially the internet giants that have control of so much information. Obviously, in all our countries, we're restructuring the regulatory relationship. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. China's doing the same thing. It's easy to find commonalities, but we shouldn't lose track of the fact that for China, this is part of a really powerful strengthening of the way the Communist Party and Xi Jinping in particular runs the policy agenda and how it extends into many different aspects. And so there are these commonalities, but also this fundamental difference. Let me ask uh, another question to you, Max. I mean, given the slight slump in China's economic growth, Do you think the CCP will be able to keep up this uh, momentum or will they ease off some of the regulatory measures, for example, in the real estate sector, which is currently shaken by the Evergrande crisis to just keep things running? That's a very good question. Uh, and I think if we starting off with the real estate question, um, I mean, this, there's a also a combination of factors coming into here. On the one side, real estate is a driver for inequality. So this is referring to also what is a part of the challenge for common prosperity. At the other hand, it's a, well, it's really the elephant in the room in addressing the leverage in the Chinese economy. So the debt issue and China's policymakers have been trying to reduce financial risk since 2017. And it's only now that they're going after real estate debt build up in really significant steps. And I think um, it is remarkable that they're choosing this time as the economy is shifting to, to lower growth and the economy is faced with you know, different uh, headwinds to begin with. Um, new growth drivers in terms of consumption are not really taking off. But I think this also reflects on how big of a risk they see in the real estate market and they, they feel they can no longer afford to kick the can down the road. We might see some fine tuning in the policy priorities. And at the moment, as we've been talking about, they're simultaneously going after a lot of policy targets from, from big tech, from cutting emission targets um, and the real estate uh, sector. Um, and all of these come at an economic cost, which means they are going to weigh down economic growth. And it really depends on 
how comfortable they are with lower growth targets. At the moment, I would say it's remarkable that they're willing to tolerate lower levels of GDP growth. Um, but I think we will see how that materializes over the next few well, months and, and how they're willing to readjust and, and maybe take the foot off the brake in some areas. And just to underline that, I mean, I completely agree with that. And it, it does seem that they're willing to accept lower GDP growth rates. And the one most surprising thing is that they have sent anti-corruption teams into the financial sector institutions right now, right as this, this very sensitive deleveraging and, and, and pressure is as sort of at its peak. They're also rolling out an anti-corruption effort which will make people more cautious at a time when they need to be especially vigilant against financial risks. So I think that's uh, a little bit peculiar and, it, and I must say it makes me worry a little bit because normally I think I would be pretty confident of their ability to contain a financial, I don't wanna use the word crisis because not a crisis yet. I mean, certainly a crisis for, for Evergrande, but it's, it's normally I'd be pretty confident of their ability to confine financial crisis in a single company, but I'm a little bit more worried right now because they don't seem uh, quite as focused as maybe I think they should be. What do you think, Barry, is behind that um, very unusual motion? And can the sixth plenums play a role in, in this context or is it a very high degree of nervousness? How would you explain this very unusual move of sending anti-corruption teams into companies right now? Well, I think in terms of timing, you know, we, we, I think everybody feels sort of instinctually that the 20th Party Congress that's one year from now is a very, very important event because this is the event where Xi Jinping will presumably be re-elected to a third term, thus shattering the limitations on, on the top leader. And I think we have a tendency to sort of think of these events as being like Congresses of our own, but we know they're not. They are ceremonial gatherings where the party ratifies the key decisions that are being made in the year previously. Oh, well, wait a minute, the year previously, that's right now, right? So I think we are seeing this process where Xi Jinping is saying, Oh, I have to put an extremely activist and powerful stamp on the overall party program so that as the preparation for the party goes on over the next year, the people who are being selected have to clearly demonstrate their loyalty to me and my program. And so that means common prosperity. That means anti-corruption. That means anti-monopoly. That means anti-financial risk. So he's ramping up all the political efforts in a way that is certainly consistent politically, but economically, as Max said, there are economic costs to every part of this. And, and so when we look at it from the economic standpoint, of course, we're all a little bit nervous. Yeah, and the economic goals that uh, she is expressing are also very, very ambitious. I mean, you wrote in your recent book, I like the quote very much, China aspires to be the first government-steered market economy, which for some people over here is quite a contradiction. Now, uh, latest uh, policies seem to indicate a certain distrust of the CCP vis-a-vis -vis private enterprise and market mechanisms. 
So is this concept of combining a technology focus with more state guidance of the economy, I think you once coined it grand steering also, is this likely to succeed if we think in scenarios for a second? What can happen? Yeah, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think even in the very short time since I wrote that book, there's been a major change. In other words, you know, 18, 24 months ago, when that manuscript was completed, I felt pretty confident saying China's been pretty careful both to choose market conforming instruments and to make it clear to private firms that they're part of the team, of the national team, and that therefore they can get state support too. You know, two years ago, there were really almost no exceptions to that, to that statement. Today, well, as you say, it's, it's kind of a different picture, isn't it? I mean, private firms definitely feel at least some questioning about whether they have a place in the new order. And some of the policy measures China has taken have been quite abrupt and quite uh, destructive of, of market value, most obviously in the destruction of the private tutoring industry, which just wiped out you know, several hundred billion dollars worth of, of equity. So I think they're, I mean, on the one hand, I'm sure that they still have this belief. I'm sure that they still think that they can have a government steered market economy and that, that, that what they're doing is consistent with it. But I think what we've seen over the summer is that the ambitions have, have, have pyramided, have just become much bigger, and they've thrown into some doubt the question of whether this steerage capability is outrunning the instruments that they have. So is there a possibility of failure? You know, in any kind of set of economic interactions, there, there's always going to be a mix of success and failure. So, yeah, of course, there, there will be failures. And it seems to me that these measures are costly and will have a significant negative medium-term impact on China's growth. So I think they're, they're very costly. But whether that leads to any kind of short-run crisis is a whole other whole question. So I'm, I'm medium-term probably medium term more pessimistic than I've ever been on the Chinese economy. But I don't think that necessarily translates into a sort of immediate crisis, although it might. Max, what is your take when it comes to looking at scenarios and looking into the future of China's economy? Well, I think we're at a very, or China's economy is at a really critical juncture uh, as they're facing really the most difficult stage of their economic development. I mean, they, the, the, the tasks are, are, are daunting. They need to become more innovative. They need to become more productive whilst they have these the social issues, the demor demography issue happening um, and all this taking place in, well, in a very shifting geopolitical context. And I think the CCP's answer at this point is to double down on them steering the economy and taking over control. And what really worries me most in all of this is this increasing use of ideology that is moving increasingly into the economic sphere, uh, affecting you know, companies' operation. And, and I think this is something that concerns me most. And I think, well, really what the CCP is, is trying to do is to prove that an authoritarian system can be innovative and ultimately be the better economic system in order to tackle the future challenges that are, are ahead in order to get China into the position where they want to be in by 2049. That is the, the well, the, the leading 
economic and technological superpower. I think that's really what's at stake here. Um, I think this is something that they, they've grown more well, confident with in at least uh, thinking that their system um, is up to the challenge. And let's see. And it's funny because for us uh, on the outside, what's so difficult is to disentangle, as, as you both have mentioned, the, this combination of self-confidence and sense of being under threat, you know, which both of which seem to have been amped up over the last couple of years, perhaps with some reason, but but still, you know, they're in, in increasing tension. At the same time, we've got more and more one person, Xi Jinping, making these decisions. So we're even more at the mercy of his sense of what needs to be done now, what's urgent, what's dangerous, and, and that's hard to track and it's hard to trust. Max Zenglein, um, Chief Economist of Merricks, Barry Norton, Professor at UC San Diego. Thank you both for your insights. And I hope our listeners here could take away interesting and thoughtful information for their own work. So thank you both again and wishing you all a good day. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.